Well, last week here at church, our theme was celebrations. And as a family, uh, my little family, we celebrated my son, uh, who's our middle child, Henry, uh, his second birthday. Now, Henry is uh, a complicated little fella, but uh, in amongst our family, he's picked up a couple of nicknames. One of them is, uh, and his most famous one in the family, is Hurricane Henry. Uh, this is because ever since Henry was born, our house, and really anywhere Henry goes, uh, turns into an absolute bombsite. Uh, we can't keep our house or anywhere Henry goes clean uh, no matter what we do. Henry wakes up around 6, 6.30, uh, and some days he wakes up and he's a Category 3, and the house is, uh, well, it stays clean till maybe around 11. Uh, and other days he wakes up and he's a Category 5, and it's all over by 7. Uh, each night, Liz and I, mainly Liz and Fairness, clean the house, uh, but so quickly the next day it turns into a mess. There's nothing that we can do. Uh, I've lost count, of, uh, lost count of the number of times that Liz and I sit down at night uh, and we make these grand plans to not let it happen uh, again the next day. Uh, but despite our best intentions, there's nothing in our power to keep our house from being a mess. Uh, each day it starts off so promising, but it all falls apart so quickly. Our grand plans and our big, big commitments, uh, they amount to nothing. And we see that, that here in Nehemiah 13, that even in the good intentions and grand plans for God's people, uh, their grand plans and their, and their good intentions to live obediently to God, it all falls apart so quickly for Israel. Their best efforts are not enough. And there's nothing that Israel can do within themselves to live God's way wholeheartedly. So as we open up this part of the Bible this morning, we're asking the question, what hope is there for God's people? And can their hearts, can our, our hearts be changed? Now, I wonder if this is something that you can relate to. If you are like me and you have areas, or sorry, and you have good intentions and, and grand plans to, to live God's way and to change those particular areas of your life where you know that you aren't living as God wants you to live, but you keep falling short, maybe it's a sinful habit that you're stuck in and you try to change, but you stuff it up again. If that's you this morning, then this part of the Bible speaks to you. Our passage today offers us hope that by God's power, you can change, we can change, and we can grow in our holiness and our godliness. Well, let's see how. Uh, to give you a quick summary of where we're up to in the book of uh, Israel, Nehemiah, uh, right to this minute, uh, Israel, they're in the land. Uh, the temple's built, the wall's built. Uh, everything's actually looking pretty good. Seemingly, they're out of exile. Israel have been reading uh, the Bible or reading God's law. They're paying attention to God's word. Uh, they're praising God. They've been repenting of their sin. And last week we saw Israel recommit to obeying God's law and living God's way. Seemingly, seemingly last week was the climax and the high point of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it actually would have been good at one level if the, if the story had to finish there, if that's all there was to say. But as we're about to jump into chapter 13 this morning, I think that actually offers a probably more realistic conclusion to the story. So as we look at chapter 13, uh, firstly, we're going to see that our good intentions and our big promises are not enough. That despite our good intentions and our big promises, uh, we can't change by ourselves. Israel, show us that like us, our best efforts, best efforts are not enough. Let's see that from the passage. Now please have your Bibles open in front of you from uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, where we read, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, 
and he was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tires of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So if you remember from earlier on in, uh, in Nehemiah, we meet this guy called Tobiah and he's bad news, right? This guy is an enemy of God's people. He stood against them and he stood, uh, he tried to stand in the way of God. He also isn't a Jew, so he shouldn't even be allowed. Well, he's not even allowed in the temple. But we see here in chapter 13 the, that Elisha, the priest of all people, had invited Tobiah to, to live in the temple. This isn't a great start for God's people uh, who have made a commitment to stick to God's way. Now we have to remember that Tobiah is a guy who's actively opposed to God's people and he's tried to prevent them from living out God's way and getting in the way of God's plan. And now he's set up an Airbnb in God's house in the temple. He's living in the rooms that were set aside for the tithes and for God's priests. And this is actually the very heart and the very centre of Jerusalem. It's a place of great influence. And they've given this place of great influence over to an enemy of God. Nehemiah tells us in verse 6 that this happened while he was away. And when he returns, in response to what he calls these evil things that Elisha had done, he throws all of Tobias' things out of the temple. And he gives orders in verse 9 to restore the temple to the way it should be. Now we have to understand, uh, to care for the temple... Which, which represents God's, uh, well, which is God's Old Testament dwelling place, represents uh, to show care for God himself. Clearly Israel aren't doing that. They're back to their old ways. But there's more in verse 10. Nehemiah says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Back in chapter 10, as Doug showed us last week, Israel had promised to tithe, offering financial support to the priests and to the Levites. But here, Israel have stopped tithing. They've reneged on their promise to God, which meant the Levites had to go find a day job to support themselves, to pay their own way. In giving up on tithing, we see Israel demonstrating a lack of trust to God to provide for their needs. And it shows that despite their best intentions... They can't fully obey God. In verse 14, we see the first of four prayers that Nehemiah prays uh, to God saying, remember me. Now, these are really important and we'll come back to them at the end. But as we continue on, we see there's more that Israel are failing. In verse 15, Nehemiah says, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Again, like tithing, Israel had committed uh, to not work or recommitted to not work on the Sabbath as God required of them. And we see here that Nehemiah has found them breaking their word again. And the reason that God had given them the Sabbath was to rest and reflect on God's goodness and his provision for them as well as to trust that God would continually provide for them. And it was also one way that Israel was marked out different from the rest of the peoples around them. Nehemiah actually reminds them in verse 18 that this is the same mistake that their forefathers had made. We can actually read in Jeremiah chapter 17 that breaking the Sabbath 
resulted in God's people being sent into exile in the first place. And we know they've just come out of exile, so breaking the Sabbath again here doesn't seem like a particularly smart move, does it? God's people are back to making the same old mistakes. They're, in their, they're, they're stuck in their same old ways. So Nehemiah takes drastic action in verse 17, and he locks the gates of the city, preventing any trading or any business done on the Sabbath. In verse 20, he sends away the foreigners who are camped outside the city, trying to do business with Israel. They're trying to entice them to break the Sabbath. Nehemiah actually says in, in verse 21, if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Or your other, your other translation may say, arrest you. He is serious about the holiness of God's people. And Nehemiah isn't just sitting back and lecturing them about what they should do, but he's actively pursuing holiness for God's people. And we've seen him, he's thrown Tobiah out of the temple, and he's now reinstituted the Sabbath. But again, we're going to see that there's more that Israel have fallen back into. Verse 23. It says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. When Israel had recommitted to living God's way in chapter 10, they had promised not to take foreign wives, but here they are again. Now, if you remember, the big problem with taking foreign wives was that along with these foreign wives came worship to the foreign gods. So God's people were at threat of seeing their hearts torn away from their loving God. We also see a consequence of this intermarriage in verse 24 when Nehemiah says that half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. How sad is this? Uh, God's people, or the children, the Israelite children, no longer knew the language that God's words were spoken and written in. If they can't understand it, how can they know and obey their God? At this rate, Israel is just going to blend in with the, with the rest of the world. In verse 26, Nehemiah likens what they're doing to exactly what Solomon did, what King Solomon did uh, in taking too many wives, which ultimately saw him fall into idolatry and fail to love God as he should. We also see in verse 28 that the problem of intermarriage goes all the way to the top as the son of the high priest I was married, sorry, the son of the high priest was the son-in-law to Samblat, who was one of Tobiah's mates, who, as we said, was an enemy of God. In, in drawing this out and making this point, particularly linking it to Solomon, Nehemiah is saying that this community represents all that is wrong with Israel. They are back to making the same mistakes that their forefathers did. The same mistakes they had committed time and time again not to make. They've made this grand resolution for change, but we see here that they've failed. And as much as Israel are trying to change and try to live God's way, they can't. They are not in themselves capable of change or obedience. They're stuck in this loop of, of sin and failure, which for them is, is followed by exile, then repentance, then repeat. Rinse and repeat, back to the start, that's Israel's existence. But I think actually Israel's experience is somewhat relatable at some levels for us. You know this feeling if you've ever tried to make a New Year's resolution to change something about yourself. In December, you have these grand plans, uh, this grand vision for the change that you want to bring about in your life. Maybe that's to exercise more or read your Bible more or read healthier. 
Uh, when Liz and I are engaged, I don't like telling this story. When Liz and I are engaged, uh, not that part, that's a good story. But uh, when we were engaged, I made a New Year's resolution uh, to not eat Maccas for a year. Uh, for, for 365 days, I didn't want to eat Maccas. I don't, know, I don't remember why specifically, but I just thought, I think a friend was doing it, so I decided to do it as well. Uh, I had a commitment to make, uh, to not eat Maccas for 365 days, and I lasted uh, 29. <laughs> uh, in fairness, uh, on January 29th, uh, 2011, Cyclone Yazi hit North Queensland, which we were living up at the time, and that seemed good enough reason for me to break, so I went to Maccas after the cyclone, not in it. <laughs> but apparently the average uh, length of time that uh, people actually stick to New Year's resolutions is uh, 28 days. I did 29, so one better. I suppose I'm better than the average, right? Uh, but with resolutions... I think you start off enthusiastic, don't you? You start off keen, but by the time February turns up, generally it's all over, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, for the most part, it's all over. You have these high hopes and you have the best intentions uh, to stick to this resolution, to make this change, but so often it falls flat. And that's what we've seen here for God's people in Nehemiah 13. Seemingly, they had everything going for them and heading for success at this point in time. They're in the land... Uh, the temple's built, the wall's built, it looks like they're out of exile. They have good intentions and grand plans to live God's way. But they've failed, haven't they? And I think it's actually a pretty honest and a realistic picture of what it looks like, or what it looks like for us as people, isn't it? It speaks into the human condition. We can't change ourselves. Uh, in terms of the overall story of the Bible, the big story of the Bible as a whole, uh, Nehemiah actually records the last events of the Old Testament. And so actually, it feels like it's a pretty disappointing way to end for God's people, doesn't it? So we get this sense that this can't be the last word. It can't be the end of the story for God's people. And praise God, it's not. Uh, around 430 years after Nehemiah, we see God act in history to change the hearts of his people. This is actually something that God had promised a long, long time ago to do. God promises way back in Ezekiel, uh, he said that I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, living after Jesus, we know that the moment that the spirit was poured out, God's spirit is poured out on God's people, was following Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension or what we call Pentecost. We can read about it in the early chapters of Acts. This is a moment when God, because of the person and work of Christ, because of Jesus, God poured out his spirit on his people. So if you have faith in Jesus and you're one of God's people, God's put his spirit in you. And you have one person of the triune God living in you. This means that because of Jesus, we're being transformed from the inside out. Uh, the people of Nehemiah's day, they hadn't experienced this change. They were longing for it. They were looking forward to it. They knew this promise in Ezekiel. But friends, because of Jesus, God has poured his spirit out upon us so we can begin to live God's way and we can begin to live obedient lives. As a staff team at the moment, we're reading through Ephesians and, and the other week we read from chapter 3 in verse 20, which reminds us, it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now what Paul is saying here is that God can bring about a change in us, in our hearts, through his spirit that is far greater than we can ever imagine. 
I think uh, this is one area of the Christian life, and I know this for myself, that we can be uh, prone to expecting too little of. Not expecting God to make real change in our hearts and our lives, in what's going on inside us. I don't know about you, but I think I can get caught up in the helplessness of, of my sin and, I don't know, the feeling of mess of life, the mess of life. This passage in Ephesians tells us that through the Spirit we can expect a growth and forward movement, a transformation in our holiness and our godliness. And this is a transformation that will be greater, as it says there, or immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine by the power of God's Spirit working in us. Now it's true, we do fail, we do fall short, we'll never be perfect this side of, of the new creation. But the Holy Spirit does empower us to change and to grow as God's people. And we should expect that. God expects that of us. And as God changes us, he's making us more and more into the image of Jesus, who is a picture of who we were made to be. This is an ongoing change in the life of the believer. But this only happens because we are in Christ and God has changed our hearts. Now, we started off asking the question this morning, what hope is there for God's people? And as we've seen, that because of Jesus and God giving us his spirit, we can see that there is hope for us. Again, not by our own actions or intentions, but by God's commitment to work in us through his spirit. And so I think there's three really helpful things we can draw from this part of the Bible this morning. Firstly, it's knowing that God can change us. If you want your life to honour God... You can't do it by yourself, but only by the power of the Spirit. So friends, it is good for us to pray that the Spirit would work in us, changing our hearts, making us more godly, and changing our our desires to be what God desires. I know for myself, I pray that God would change my heart to help me to love people well, and not be selfish and thinking about my own feelings and frustrations, to change my desires uh, to be that to please God. We can also pray that God would show us, it's kind of a scary prayer in some ways, uh, that God would show us where our sin is. We can pray, God, show me where my life is not matching up to what you ask of me and help me to live a life honouring to you, God. And by the power of the Spirit, uh, God can do this. He can change us. But friends, we still have a role to play. Uh, Because Nehemiah had an insight into the majesty and the glory of God, he shows us how to seek a godly life. And there are some really practical things we can draw from uh, from Nehemiah. One in particular, Nehemiah works to remove things uh, in the life of God's people that get in the way of their holiness. If you remember when he came back and he saw Tobiah was living in the temple, he immediately clears him out. Because Tobiah represented an obstacle for God's people living God's way. So he actively removed him, didn't he? I wonder, the question for ourselves is, I wonder if there's any Tobias in our lives. Sins or things that we're holding on to that we need to clear out from our lives. Things that are actively getting in the way of our holiness. What is your Tobias that you need to get rid of to pursue godliness? Nehemiah shows us that we have a part to play in growing in our holiness. Nehemiah deals with things that get in the way of us living as God wants to. Like Nehemiah, we need to put in place or remove things that help or hinder us living for God. 
We have to remember that God is the one who ultimately changes us, but we still have a part to play. We have to play our part. Finally, Nehemiah shows us what our motivation for godliness should be. He shows us that it should be our desire to please God. And now there are four times in, in chapter 13 when Nehemiah turns to God praying, remember me. And it's actually the very, la- very last line of this book. He says, remember me. I think he's saying this because he wants to please God. Uh, throughout this book, everything that Nehemiah had done has been for God. Because Nehemiah loves God and he wants to please God in all that he does. That, that's his motivation. I think it would be a mistake to think that this prayer, these remember me prayers, is one of self-boasting. As if he's saying, hey God, remember me, look at me, look what I've done for you. I don't think that fits with the Nehemiah that we've seen throughout the book, does it? But I think it's actually better to think of this prayer in terms of Nehemiah wanting to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when he stands before his God. I want to hear those words when I stand before God. Do you? Well done, good and faithful servant. Nehemiah's motivation has been to please his God. And so I think that's a good question to ask ourselves this morning. What is our motivation? What is our motivation for living the Christian life? Are we just here because we feel like it's, it's what we're supposed to be doing? I myself have to keep coming back to this question and checking where my heart's at on, at on this, even as someone who works at church and, and goes to Bible college. Am I doing it out of what's become a sense of obligation and habit? Or like Nehemiah, do I... And do you long to please God with your life, growing in your holiness and your godliness, living a life that is pleasing and honouring to God? Friends, it's a good question to ask ourselves this morning. Well, as we close, we started off this morning asking the question, what hope is there for God's people and can our hearts be changed? And we've seen that because of Jesus, there is. There is hope because God has given us his spirit and by his power he is changing his people. Praise God for that.